Welcome back to Bootability. Before we jump in today, a quick reminder that during the month of July, we're on a break and playing reruns of our most popular episodes from the archives. We'll be back with brand new episodes the first Wednesday in August. Today, we're going to play an episode that was originally aired November 2020 called How to Make Progress Even When You Can't See Eye to Eye. Welcome back to Bootability, a weekly interview series about the amazing ability people have to change our lives and the world if we're brave enough to tap into it. These are honest conversations with people of all walks of life, reflecting on their own bootability, what it looks like, how it feels, and how the philosophy of SGI Nichiren Buddhism, which is based on the practice of chanting Nam Myoho Renge Kyo, can be used to bring it out. I'm your host, Jihee Jolly. So today's guest is Abe Uccello, who practices Buddhism in Florida, and like so many people I've met through the SGI, has had some seriously encouraging life experiences. I called him for this episode because I've been trying to understand what the Buddhist perspective on dealing with uncertainty is, and I heard he's had to deal with a lot of it in his work with the prison system in Florida. I began to understand that changing the situation was much like changing society. You know, I can't force people to my way of thinking or exact some chaotic upheaval of an existing system and expect that things are going to sustainably change. You know, that way of thinking only perpetuates more violence and more hate. I realized this was less about changing the grand face of all society and more about changing me. My disbelief in people that were perceived quote unquote, enemies, and to find the dignity and respect for their life. You know, so that process, it was a grind. You know, it's not easy. It is the toughest, truest grit work anyone can ever do. Before we meet him, here's some context for today's show. 2020 has been an incredibly challenging year. Many of us have been facing uncertainty and continue to face uncertainty on so many levels. Every week, it kind of feels like hope is farther and farther away. So whether you're just trying to find the energy to keep going, or you're fighting for change in your own sphere of society, this episode is all about how to keep going when it feels impossible. Listening today, I invite you to think about a moment when you felt like you're up against a major battle. Maybe it's the environment you're currently in, maybe it's a culture you're hoping to change, or maybe it's a battle within your own self. Do you feel small or determined? How we see ourselves when standing at the bottom of a mountain is the key to everything. If we allow ourselves to feel small and powerless, we lose. But the key takeaway from today's conversation is that if you can find a way to win over yourself, you can unlock the wisdom to create trust and progress in your own corner of the world. Believing in yourself against all odds helps you believe in other people against all odds, no matter how they might be behaving now. And this adds up to major change in the long run. When you're fighting for something, you're less likely to get swayed by uncertainty, and you're more likely to inspire the people around you to also keep going. That's a winning combination. And as we'll hear today, Buddhism is actually about winning, not surviving. 
Abe is someone who has managed to stay hopeful and take action no matter what he's been up against, and I learned a lot through our conversation, so I hope you enjoy this one as much as I did. As always, you can check the show notes for a breakdown of topics as you listen. Why don't we just start with uh, you introducing yourself, so if you could tell me your name, maybe where you are and what you do. Sure. Uh, My name is Abe Uccello, and uh, I'm uh, located in Sarasota, Florida, and uh, I'm an entrepreneur and uh, a founder of an organization um, that partners with states to collect education data and uh, their programs data for formerly incarcerated individuals. And then we use artificial intelligence to create searchable resumes um, that helps connect these people with employment when they return to their community. I I have to ask, I mean, I imagine it was a journey that led you to do this kind of a work. So could you maybe briefly just share um, prior to this what what it is that you were doing? Yeah, so um, I was never in criminal justice uh, beforehand and uh, always sort of had a background in business and tech. And uh, I had developed some relationships in the capital uh, in the state of Florida. And uh, some years prior, I was asked, uh, based on those relationships, friendships really, and my desire to uh, inject humanism into process, you know, that uh, I would come up and help with the prison system. So at that time, I ended up uh, working as, um, I was asked to come on board as a director of reentry. So essentially what that did was it, um, you know, I was entrusted with uh, basically every program that was used to help an individual rehabilitate and get them ready to go back to community. So it was everything from cognitive and behavioral programs, substance abuse treatment, um, you know, literacy, high school education, even secondary education uh, in some instances. So, you know, anything we could do to really help them become ready to go home. I know that um, what you then discovered along the way was very different than a clear path home. So I'm going to ask about that in a little bit, but maybe just so we can get to know you a little bit better and also what role sort of Buddhism plays in your life. um, Can you just share kind of uh, kind of what intrigues you about Buddhism? How did did you get into it? Why did you start chanting? It's a wonderful question. I always love to answer. I, um, uh, you know, it was the age old question. What is the meaning of life? You know, um, and it was frankly my last stop. Uh, my father, who was my best friend, you know, he had passed away, um, and I was on a path to irrevocably hurting myself with drugs and alcohol in an effort to hide from the reality of his loss. And uh, he was a seeker, you know, uh, he was always looking for something I think he would have absolutely truly believed in the power of this Buddhism and philosophy. Uh, for living the best life. Uh, He had taken me through 14 religions through the first half of my life. Wow. You know, as a small child. And uh, so I had the fortune to experience many faiths. And, um, you know, being devastated after this two-year cancer battle and realizing I couldn't save him, you know, was really, uh, uh, I was in a lot of despair. So in 2007, in the midst of the Great Recession, I had you know, pretty much lost all my economic stability. Um, I placed my work life on hold to care for my father. And uh, I was left to navigate caring for my mother who suffered from schizophrenia 
uh, my entire life. And so uh, this powerlessness that I had, you know, really drove this anger to the surface of my life. And I would lash out at everybody in my environment. So after he passed away, I returned to my favorite childhood memory with my dad, which was when he taught me how to scuba dive when I was 12 years old. So I decided to continue my education uh, scuba diving. I called it underwater therapy. So my assigned dive buddy in this class was like this advanced rescue diver course, um, happened to be a Nichiren Buddhist. And uh, he introduced me courageously and bravely to Nichiren Daishonin's Buddhism and chanting Nam Myoho Renge Kyo. You know, and uh, honestly, his life state was super curious to me. You know, um, actually, it was beautiful. And uh, his personal conviction and confidence amidst his own personal challenges, like how he made me feel, um, it gave me hope. Mm -hmm. So 13 years ago was when that occurred and I never looked back. And a consistent practice of chanting has enabled me to transform every one of these negative situations in a total victory for my life. People come to chanting through such interesting paths. I'm curious um, if you had to say sort of like the one thing that you started to gain from chanting, like whether it was a feeling or it was a, just a sense of yourself or whatever it might be, what would you say like once you started chanting Nam Myoho Renge Kyo, what kind of happened? I remember feeling like I had control over my life again, mm. although I didn't understand how. Hmm. And I didn't see actual proof of that at first, except in my environment, people began commenting on how I had changed. Hmm. I wasn't angry anymore. And I was really trying to understand, mm. you know, the nature of my life and its purpose and where I would go from here, no mm. matter what. That leads really well into sort of what the, the topic of today's conversation is, because um, just hearing you say that you felt a sense of control over your life and I guess your happiness, too, even though it maybe it was intangible or you didn't see that right away. Um, I think human beings really... Um, kind of do whatever it takes to feel in control when things feel scary, you know, and sometimes those are not necessarily yeah. the most um, healthy, productive things. And sometimes they they are. So uh, th this is what I wanted to talk about today, because I think 2020 has been such a challenging year. And, um, you know, many people, good people are trying to affect so much change in so many different parts of society, but it's hard to feel like you're actually making any headway. Um, so I'm curious, do you have any experiences with that in your own career since you did, you know, mention working with um, the prison system, which is a big one. And yeah, any any story that you might like to share, share about that? Yeah, you know, there were so many stories uh, working inside the prison system as well as outside now. But, you know, I can recall this one uh, particular battle challenge <laughs> you know, that I uh, decided to take on, you know. When I had uh, arrived, uh, you know, I began reviewing all the programs within uh, the Department of Corrections, and I began seeing major disparities into who is gaining access into education. So the, there was like a scorecard for every person, you know, and that scorecard that allowed somebody to enter a program weighed on many factors. Some were legitimate, you know, and others 
honestly were just a stark reality. So things like race, criminal record, um, you know, that history, the type of crimes they committed, disciplinary issues while incarcerated, you know, all these things contributed to the scorecard of what I'd call access. And, uh, you know, there was only so many seats available in a classroom based off of budget. And so, um, you know, the common sentiment I found, the culture I found within the noble workers that were trying to help uh, inside that system was there's nothing we can do. It is what it is. Mm. And after some years of practice, I knew that that was not my philosophy of living. You know, <laughs> that settling couldn't be it. You know, it didn't create value. So uh, I really made a bold determination at that time, you know, to increase the number of people who could gain access to education without waiting for a new budget. And so the idea was uh, to use the best of the incarcerated uh, individuals to expand the number of teachers, you know, what we called inmate teaching assistants, and then also expand the number of daily classes as a result. But as I began that discovery, um, I found out that thousands of the best and brightest, you know, those um, I would have asked to be inmate teaching assistants have been ordered to prison industry work assignments. And, um, you know, a lot of these individuals had really long sentences, which made them like a perfect long-term employee, if you will, if you will of this, mm-hmm. you know, uh, quasi-governmental entity, you know, they've been uh, implemented for the past half century. So I raised concerns internally, you know, with staff about this practice. And, um, you know, this is where I really, you know, met great resistance. Um, I was looked at as though I had seven heads. Um, I was called hug-a-thug. I was called soft on inmates. Um, And as I dug further, you know, I found inmates were paid pennies, you know, per hour for what was the most often difficult labor, you know. And one of those industries was sugar. You know, and uh, I remember driving from a prison across, you know, the Everglades and uh, seeing fertile black soil, like the darkest, most richest soil you've ever seen. And seeing, you know, people swinging blades, you know, in those fields, you know, wearing, you know, prison uniforms. I immediately felt something inside my own life, you know, that was raging against the inhumanity. And, you know, what seemed to me a real lack of dignity for respecting those people's lives. And I could tell that all of my education staff was really challenged by the questions I posed. And they were even like really kind of perplexed. And I remember clearly one very heated discussion with staff in my office one day where I vowed this practice would change. Mm -hmm. And I was laughed at. You know, and in that moment, the only thing I could think to ask myself is what would my mentor do? Mm. You know, so I began meeting with the president of this entity, this organization, where we would engage in um, numerous dialogues about the nature of that business. But I quickly transformed that uh, conversation into one about human dignity and our shared humanity, you know, talked about our family, our children our friends, our spouses, you know, and we found little common ground when it came to the incarcerated. Mm. But I could tell some small thing had ignited in his heart. And the coldness and iciness of those encounters, they started to kind of, you know, fall away. And, uh, you know, 
I also remember that this was so difficult for me because in my heart, I wanted to reach out and just shake the person in front of me, mm-hmm. you know, until they understood the value of a human life. And, uh, but rather, you know, I pressed on with the questions again and again, like, you know, how does this meet, you know, the mandate of the statute? How is this lawful? How is it? How is it? You know, and just kept going back to that. So uh, he would always end, you know, like really dismissively with me. And I remember one time he just said, Abe, you know, you're a very interesting person. Um, And I always enjoy our spirited discussions. (laughs) You know, they never really ended that well. Mm. So. Wow. I mean, it sounds like so essentially you're like the only person trying to raise a flag about something that's clearly disrespecting other people. And then you're either sort of being laughed at or dismissed, but no one's really engaging with you productively about it. Um, Mm -hmm. I'm sure many people have their own sort of version of that dynamic in different workspaces. So just before we kind of hear how this experience ended or what the outcome was, um, what role did you what did chanting have to play in all of this? Like, how, how are you feeling? And, and what was the, what were you doing as a Buddhist during this time? Yeah, you know, chanting helps us cultivate wisdom, you know, and gives us a tremendous awakening of what we already have inside of us to navigate murky waters, you know, honestly. <laughs> And it also helps us turn enemies into allies. You know, we can use that wisdom to really uh, transform, you know, even uh, the most challenging circumstances, most impossible things into a possibility. And so, um, you know, during this time, I found myself really chanting uh, for wisdom, you know, but also uh, to do my human revolution, this thing, which was this inward reflection, you know, really wrestling with all of the feelings I too was holding against others, a disbelief in their dignity because of their actions, Uh, Hmm. you know, um, a tremendous doubt in my own life that I was not capable, that this was a battle not worth fighting, that it would end at cross purposes with myself or with a career, all those things I was challenging with what we call human revolution mm-hmm. in Nietzsche Dashon's Buddhism. You know, so that unlocked this courage and wisdom and compassion, you know, and honestly, empathy and patience that was drastically needed because the journey, as I was defined, was going to be a long one. I was fighting internally to control that rage and anger that I had experienced before when I first encountered the practice, you know, but this time it was a rage and anger towards injustice. You know, and uh, I had to find a a way through. So I began studying, you know, Um, I began studying a lot. The letters uh, Nichiren Daishonin wrote to his followers in 13th century Japan and how he was able to use this belief in the inherent dignity of all life, beginning with my own, Mm -hmm. to be able to transform enemies into allies. Mm -hmm. You know, so for the first time, I found myself holding empathy for my enemies you know, and I began to understand that changing the situation was much like changing society. You know, I can't force people to my way of thinking, you know, or exact some chaotic upheaval of an existing system and expect that things are going to sustainably change. You know, that way of thinking 
only perpetuates more violence and more hate. So rather the social injustices that I was encountering, you know, including racism and discrimination, you know, were ingrained in generations of thinking and feeling until they became something like someone just thought of as normal. So uh, Daisaku Ikeda says that the only way to true reform of any type is helping one person at a time ignite a flame of dignity and respect, you know, in their own life. So that's what I set out to do. Wow. I, I think that this, this concept that you're raising of um, turning your enemy into your ally, it just, it's just something you don't really hear, you know? Um, and actually summoning the courage to respect people no matter how they act. I mean, it's really kind of the hardest thing in the world, especially when you feel something is right or wrong. So, so I'm curious then, you know, based on this sort of tenacious effort and chanting that had to go into this, what, what were you able to achieve over time by sort of planting these seeds of, of trust and friendship? Yeah, you know, um, in all of those situations, there were people. And so trust and friendship had to be created with everyone in the process. It had to be not only education staff, but it had to be, you know, staff from the prison industry entity. It had to be correctional staff, you know, that were overseeing security. It had to be classification staff who were, in all practical senses, controlling the scorecard of mm-hmm. who got access, you know, to education. So trust and friendship boils down to people, you know, and it boils down to that one-to-one encouragement. So I began really trying to understand internally through the policies and procedures, you know, how we could roll these prison industries into our rehabilitative programs mission, rather than toss it out the window, rather than try to, you know, legislate them out of business or, you know, fight these battles that honestly sometimes could feel like Don Quixote you know, attacking the windmill. Um, We continued to meet, you know, and disagree. But each time, you know, and even with certain staff, I remember sabotaging, you know, uh, the progress we were making. Eventually, I was entrusted, you know, through that process of making all of the decisions as it related to prison industries within the department. So it became less and less easy you know, to simply sweep these challenges under the rug, if you will, hmm. you know, or to undo them, you know, even after I was to leave. So, um, you know, it was a tremendous victory. You know, we were able to change the prison industry worker profile, you know, to be 70% of those workers had five years or less, you know, on sentence. Whereas before, you know, it was 90% had 15 years or more to life you know, on sentence. So while it increased the number of prison industry jobs, it also provided real hands-on training for individuals that would be going home. And so we struck this wonderful compromise to where, you know, not only would prison industries be able to increase the amount of work that they were doing, but at the same time, those individuals, you know, would have an opportunity to get Uh, a wonderful paying job when they were able to get out because they had that experience. 
So from there, we went on to work on, you know, the amount of pay and work tirelessly and relentlessly, you know, towards that goal as well. Then mystically, during that legislative session, uh, uh, an environmental bill uh, was passed and signed into law. And its principal aim was to improve the water quality in Lake Okeechobee um, after many years of agricultural pollution. And then at the last moment, um, leadership in the legislature uh, made a historic move to add an amendment that eliminated prison industries from competing with other agricultural industries and specifically to shut down their sugarcane operation. You know, so because of this, uh, I remember attending the board meeting that immediately followed. And there was a tremendous amount of humility and there was a tremendous amount of openness, you know, as we began finally working together to try and understand how could this entity still remain in business, if you will, and at the same time, meet the mandates of the statute that gave them the flexibility to operate and create the most value for those in whose care they were entrusted. So all of those meetings then became known as something, you know, that I quoted as creating more value, you know, and we just kept at it, kept at it. So it was tremendous, tremendous victory for everyone, I believe. Wow, that's incredible. That's what a turn of events. <laughs> yeah. You know, people always like to or want to be able to backtrack and be like, you know, A plus B plus, you know, this move is what caused this to happen. But um, I love that you said that, you know, at the end of the day, it's it's always people are always involved because people are so dynamic. So the only way to really advance, you know, is to just build trusting relationships and then be able to be flexible together, you know? Yes. So, yeah, that's so encouraging. Um, so I'm just curious, why didn't you give up? I mean, that's like a really difficult challenge. You could have sort of been like, I'm one person who's up against kind of this this major um, system slash way of thinking that's so ingrained. And you could have just walked away and been like, this is never going to change, you know. But instead, you're like, OK, one person at a time. So before, yeah, why didn't you give up or what made you want to keep going? I had made a vow. Hmm. In Buddhism, this concept of a vow is the most powerful force in chanting. You know, that vow is for the happiness of every person. And I can't really be happy if I know you're unhappy. Hmm. True happiness can't be built on the backs of other people's unhappiness. Hmm. That goes for me. That goes for everyone, you know? So that vow that I learned from Daisaku Ikeda is the most noble thing a person could ever do. It's a path to really beginning a practice for others, which is the source of true benefit in our lives. Hmm. You know, and soon after making that vow, I realized this was less about changing the grand face of all society and more about changing me. My disbelief in people that were perceived, quote unquote, enemies. And to find the dignity and respect for their life. You know, so that process it was such a journey and it was a grind. You know, it's not easy 
It is the toughest, truest grit work anyone can ever do in any realm or sphere of living, work, relationships, doesn't matter. But that vow for the happiness of everyone I encountered, without that vow, you know, a determination can just quickly become, you know, an unsustainable fizzle. Hmm. You know, it just sort of fizzles out, you know, because then it becomes about money or it becomes about, and you're forever chasing the emotion behind that thing. But with a vow based on the happiness of others, there's nothing more noble and nothing more valuable. And it becomes a source of unlimited strength, you know, to be able to put another foot in front of the other, frankly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that definitely makes sense. Um, I'm just thinking from the perspective of people who don't practice Buddhism or are sort of even new to the concept of like um, making a vow. I know in Buddhism, we we also say a vow is is like a pledge, you know, a pledge mm-hmm. to continue to take action. Um, yes. And, uh, yeah, it's just, it's so lofty to, to feel responsible for the happiness of other people, but it's, I totally agree. I'm just curious, you know, um, um, having seen so much of the sort of darkest parts of humanity, um, how have you been able to maintain hope and even a desire to continue taking some sort of action, you know, despite kind of being so aware of what human beings are capable of. Yes. um, I often likened prison to society's closet. (laughs) You know, it's where we put things that we don't like to look at. You know, they're messy or they just want to kind of put them away. But those things still exist and we can't deny their existence. And so that darkness that you talk about you know, also has a light. And it's an inherent aspect of life, you know. So hope amidst darkness is something we have to create. So I think the question that follows is, where does the energy to create hope come from? Mm. You know, one of my favorite um, books is The Count of Monte Cristo. Mm You know, and uh, there's wonderful story, you know, of a young man, you know, who falls in love and a jealous suitor who happens to hold a position of authority, you know, in government has him falsely imprisoned, you know, as a traitor to the government. But it is in prison that he encounters his mentor in life and a man who teaches him great things. I always it's okay, I'd like to just share this quote from him yeah, because yeah, it was so uh, such an amazing quote where the main character of the novel, the protagonist, is asking, you're such a smart guy. You know, it's such a shame that it's locked up here in these prison walls. Your wisdom is amazing. And the Abbey responds to him and says, pressure is required, you know, to ignite powder. Captivity has collected into one single focus all the floating faculties of my mind. They have come into close contact in the narrow space in which they have been wedged. And you are well aware that from the collision of clouds, electricity is produced. From electricity comes the lightning, from whose flash we have light amid our greatest darkness. Hmm. You know, so I really feel like 
You know, Nichiren Buddhism, you know, teaches us how to pull the light from the darkness. You know, our greatest creativity comes when we feel constraints. Mm. And so in that way, you know, in many senses, prison and the darkness of prison or criminal justice in general, you know, is just a reflection of what's already happening in society, mm. in community. You know, that something where we're just trying to put it away in the closet mm. and not address it, you know. But Buddhism gives us the courage to be able to address those situations, you know, with dignity, not only for ourselves, but for other people, you know, and that inexhaustible wellspring of creativity that comes from chanting, you know, enables us to meet every challenge with a bold response. And it's one that's going to create the most value in every situation. Hmm. Yeah, that's that's a beautiful quote and example. I really love that. It's It makes me think of the book, um, Hope is a Decision. I think so many people right now are are just dying for some kind of a tool to create hope and generate energy to keep going. But it strikes me everything that you're saying that you sort of have to know the end goal. You know, like, why why are we creating hope in the first place? Why are we trying to be happy in the first place? And it just occurred to me that most of the time, people just want things to stay the same and stay comfortable. And so, you know, you run out of energy trying to keep things the way you like them. (laughs) But... uh, you know what I mean? So I, I'm just what, like, what's totally. the, what would you say is the, the end goal in Buddhism? You know, like, what is it that we're ultimately moving towards for somebody um, that has just no idea, you know, chanting gives you energy and wisdom and courage, but, but for what, like, why should we be pursuing happiness? You know, I'm just curious. If I can't become happy, someone else won't become happy. Hmm. If I can't become happy, I'll become a problem for myself and others. Hmm. I'll become an impediment to someone else's dreams. In Buddhism, everything's about causation. Hmm. You know, this cause and effect. And even unknowingly making a cause, you know, has an effect. So to become aware or awakened that my life matters, that my life counts, that my life can change the course of destiny of a neighborhood, you know, and if it's a neighborhood, that can be a community. If that's a community, it can be a state. If it's a state, it can be a nation, you know, but it all boils down to people, Hmm. you know, and it boils down to dialogue with people. You know, the toughest conversations, to have real dialogue, you know, and to constantly be polishing, you know, this diamond that each of us has in our life, you know, something we call Buddhahood or Buddhability, mm. you know, that diamond, it's dirty, you know, but it's there. You know, we just have to keep working at it, you know, so I don't know that there's an end game. In fact, Honestly, I've come to live a life now where I hope there never is, Hmm. you know, like this constant process of summiting this great mountain of the happiness for others, you know, and and graving, you know, my initials all along the way, Hmm. you know, for the happiness of other people. You know, it gives me tremendous joy, you know, to be able to suffer what I need to suffer, you know, and so that other people could understand uh, perhaps some more hope 
some more happiness in their life, mm-hmm. regardless of their faith. Yeah. Yeah, just what an amazing way to look at life. <laughs> I, I, uh, I'm so encouraged hearing you say that. So I, I guess my, um, my last question would be, you know, if you, if you could give a piece of advice to someone who is currently feeling, you know, overwhelmed by uncertainty about the future, whether that means something in their own life or, you know, our planet, there's so many things that are uncertain and so many things that sometimes we feel so small and unable to impact. Um, yeah. What, what advice would you give to somebody who's sort of feeling a little bit stuck in that, in that place right now? Yeah, I think this is a a pervasive feeling, you know, at this time, but probably the first thing I would say is you don't have to be afraid. Hmm. You know, never give up on your dreams. You're capable and you're strong. And I think when we feel overwhelmed by things that are happening around us, you know, the opposite of that feeling of powerlessness is a determination. You know, so maybe somewhere we're lacking the determination to try. Mm-hmm. You know, that's worth exploring. You know, that's worth exploring. And a determination, you know, based on a vow, a pledge, you know, to never quit to never stop, to relentlessly fight for the happiness of every person, no matter what that looks like. And every situation will be completely different based on dialogue. There won't be some black or white policy or regulation or law that's gonna be good for everyone. We've seen plenty of proof of that Hmm. over many years. So the only thing left is this courage of dialogue, you know, and the ability to create hope. You know, so you're capable, you're strong. Don't give up. Hmm. Never. Can I just ask a quick follow-up to that? When you say for the happiness of other people, um, how are you defining happiness in that sense? Most invariably, if I am encountering some obstacle or some suffering in my life, there's probably a thousand people behind me that are experiencing the same thing. Hmm. For me to have a victory over myself, my negative tendencies that want to give in, give up and run. Hmm. Those doubts fundamentally translates into me not being able to help other people, you know, forge a path on their own journey. You know, one of the most incredible things about Nichiren Buddhism with the Soka Gakkai are the countless experiences of everyday people doing extraordinary things with their practice of faith in Nam Myoho Renge Kyo. Mm. They're winning over the lesser self, mm. you know, and so that other people too can win and have a victory in their life. When that happens, the confidence and conviction that comes from expanding one's life state. You know, you just created capacity that you didn't even know you had. Mm. You know, and that happiness in that moment, 
you know, is what gives us the fortitude to continue on, you know, and working for others on behalf of others, you know, gives us a tremendous sense of mission where all the things we think are negative, perhaps, you know, become, you know, our mission towards the future. So I feel like at this time, you know, the importance of your dream is crucial to the success of the planet, to the success of an economy, to the success, you know, of a politic. It doesn't matter. Your victory is the victory of the rest of mankind. Mm. So you got to win. And Buddhism is all about winning. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I so appreciate that you said that. Actually, when I graduated from college and I was feeling, um, uh, what now, what next, where do I belong? You know, somebody who practices Buddhism, I completely forgot about this. Actually, they sent me a text message that essentially said what what you're saying, you know, like uh, in this vision of global peace that we're developing, um, please remember that your victory is essential. And just it really changed the course of everything I did after that because you, you don't yeah. get told that. You know, the only thing I would just say is my my time in working in prison systems has shown me that life is messy. Hmm. Life is full of contradictions. And you need a tool to navigate all that and to stay in the moment and, you know, not get overwhelmed with that bigger picture out there, you know, and it's different than just meditating or thinking about yourself. Hmm. You know, it really requires a tremendous amount of dialogue and effort, you know, painstaking effort, you know, to create that victory that we're talking about in all aspects of our life, you know, that requires a discipline. So for me, I have been able to cultivate that discipline through chanting, you know, in the morning and in the evening, it's become these bookends of my life. Hmm. And that's been able to permeate through all of the rest of the activities, you know, I'm engaged in throughout each and every day. So no matter what it is, when we make a determination, it has to be based on a great good. Mm. If it's not, like I mentioned, it'll fizzle out. It won't be sustainable. Mm. You know, so if it's based on emotion, we can't win. Mm. You know, but when it's based on the happiness of oneself and others, you know, this is the teaching of the Lotus Sutra. You know, it is the most noble, it's the highest cause a person can make. And that'll permeate through everything you do in your life. Mm. You know, and everything will begin to blossom. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So when I talk about like chanting being a discipline in my life, it wasn't until I started this practice of Buddhism, of chanting consistently morning and evening, that I was able to create this rhythm in my life, which was, I respect my life. I recognize the innate and inherent dignity of my own life. You know, from there, I could begin to move. You know, without that, I was always looking to others, you know, for some sort of recognition or understanding that my life was important. And when I didn't get it, 
you know, it would become a problem. Mm. So fundamentally, this discipline and this idea of mastering oneself, you know, for me, you know, has been really studying Buddhism and applying it, not just theorizing it, but trying to live it. Mm. Yeah, I, just hearing that and, and hearing your story, um, it just clicked to me that, I, you know, so often I've had so many conversations with young people, with friends recently in recent months, and they all sort of are like, you know, why should I try if I know at the end of the day, my goal is so unlikely to be accomplished. But it, it just struck me hearing you talk that, well, is the goal to get the outcome that you want? Or is the goal to really be able to along the way, wake up and encourage other people to be able to live a great life and also, you know, summon that energy? Yeah. Daisaku Keda says that a goal, the purpose of a goal, you know, in Buddhist faith is to create unity. Hmm. You know, so if you think about that, I think it really sort of answers that question in all aspects of life, because Buddhism isn't divorced from life. It's steeped in living, you know, regular everyday life. So when I think about that, I think, you know, if no matter what my goal is, if it's based on the highest good, and I can create unity around that. Even just one person, you know, can really transform an entire land. That's all we have time for today. But if you enjoyed the show and you want to learn more, we have lots of great content for you this week, specifically about how to deal with uncertainty and how to think about change. You can find it all at bootability.org. And don't hesitate to get in touch with us using the Connect form or reach out to me at podcast at sgi-usa.org. That's it for today, and we'll see you next week.